also a tin teardrop. But I'm doing well, well. I run on laser beams. <laughs> Star Hello and welcome to Track by Track Presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's one-of-a-kind 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing When Big Jones Sets Up, which is track 17, track 4 on side 3. This was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale in March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, personnel on the track, as always, is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals and saxophone. Uh, length of this track is 5 minutes and 18 seconds. This is the longest song on the album. It is an epic compared to some of the others. Uh, my guest today is Marco Rossi. Marco is a record reviewer for Record Collector Magazine and Shindig. Uh, Marco, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And um, yeah, very nice to be talking about uh, when Big Jones sets up, which um, always struck me as one of the one of the kind of hits from the album because it's got almost a coherent groove compared to some of the lumpier ones that you know, which you know, isn't to denigrate any of that stuff, but it sounds. It almost has, you could almost imagine it on a single, um, which is maybe a bit fanciful of me, <laughs> but, um, you know, I was... No, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I was, um, when I was listening to it, um, before the show, um, and, and yesterday, um, by the standards of this album, this song has like an almost danceable groove. Like there's, yeah. it, it moves like, a um, it moves like a, a good hard R&B song. I know Mike Barnes in his book on uh, Captain Beefheart um, mentions this song as having one of the more overt R&B influences. He says, based on a boogie whose forward thrust comes from guitars playing a repetitive push-pull riff. So, yeah, this this one this one definitely grooves. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit like um, I would stick it alongside things like Pachuco Cadaver and Veterans Day Poppy or, or The Blimp, perhaps, because it kind of seems like if I was going to play the album to someone, I'd maybe start with them and say this is your your, your gateway drug, as it were, you know, um, before you get into the, 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 the less linear stuff, perhaps. But um, even within that, um, I was listening to it again um, today just to kind of reacquaint myself with it and kind of laughing my head off at um, Rocket Morton's bass part, the way it sort of devolves during the verses, where he sort of goes from accentuating the those pushes into just playing these barbed fistfuls of chords that kind of fall away from the timing. It's, it's <laughs> an incredible part. Yeah, the the um, the idiosyncrasies of, of Boston's bass playing has has come up a lot in the different um, the different episodes that I've recorded for the show. And of course he's, he's playing what is assigned to him by, by Van Vliet and um, John French. But, sure. but yeah, the um, f- fistfuls is a great way of describing it. Those, those uh, B 
big, big fat chords that just kind of slap you in the face like a board. Is, <laughs> there, there's no other bass player before or since, I think, who has, has worked, worked in that particular style. No, but it's definitely, yeah, it's very much a, it's a, a beef heart identifier. Um, I, I finally got to see the Magic Band in 1980 on the Dock at the Radar Station tour. And nice. it was, um, yeah, Eric Drew Feldman was playing bass then. And um, the concert started with a bass solo, which used to be, I believe, an identifier of, you know, of beef heart gigs previous to that. And, um, and it was hysterical. It put everybody in a really good mood because you're just laughing your head off at the audacity of starting a gig <laughs> with a bass solo. <laughs> and um, and before I came out and said, um, I guess he really meant that. And um, it was fantastic. It was such a, a brilliant way to get people on side, but you'd never in your wildest imaginings think, I know what we'll do. We'll start the gig with a bass solo. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely not something that you're going to see an arena rock band probably <laughs> do is send their bass player out. To, to get everyone going. I, I read an interview with with uh, Eric Drew Feldman who, who said something, I believe he came into the band as primarily a keyboard player and hadn't was not as familiar with the bass beforehand and said something along the lines of, I don't really know how to play the bass. I know how to play the bass in this one specific way because I learned to play you know, the stuff that, that Tom Van Vliet needed me to play. So <laughs> I don't think he has any, at this point, he may have picked up things since then, but he... Uh, primarily learned to play the beef heart bass and yeah. probably probably would not be um would not be able to or be interested in performing a more standard bass line no it's, it's quite a singular thing really um it's funny i i um listening to the track again today um it took me right back to the whole business of getting into track mask replica in the first place and i suspect my my experience is probably quite similar to a lot of other people in terms of the fact that initially I didn't get it at all for the longest time. Um, I, I must have bought it, it was probably about 1977 or 78, I think. I was um, 16. Um, I already had and loved Safe as Milk, which I'd bought from a local department store in, in Greenock in Scotland called Arnott's, which rather oddly started selling albums for a while. And they didn't even have a, a record department. It was just like a big bunch of shrink-wrapped LPs arbitrarily racked together in the middle of the shop. Um, they probably did some kind of one-off deal, maybe, because if I remember rightly, the albums were all imports, and many of them had like a hole punched through the top left-hand corner of the sleeve, so it was just like one big cutout bin. Um, and um, so I got Safest Milk from there, and that, that was terrific. Um, I wanted to immediately. And then um, I was also getting into early Mothers of Invention stuff, and um, at that time you could quite easily buy things like the Wildman Fisher album, you know, um, the GTOs, the Alice Cooper things, uh, Lucille Has Messed My Mind Up by Jeff Simmons, great album. Um, and Trout Mask was kind of regarded as, it was almost like, it was like a rite of passage, you know, any hardcore freak had to have <laughs> Trout Mask. You know? And uh, so I thought, okay, I'll take the plunge. And it was, it was a, a big uh, layout a double album you know when you're 16 I think I probably you know bought it with record tokens and some scraped together pocket money and um, I just could not get it I couldn't get it for months and I just doggedly listened to it again and again and one day it suddenly clicked oh god those are the arrangements this that's how the songs go and I can't believe that hadn't occurred to me beforehand and uh, that was just suddenly 
I just went from you know incomprehension to adulation like like that you know and um uh, when big john sets up was one of the ones that um I, I think you probably mentioned beforehand that um every every track on this is like a, is of a standard you know uh you may have favorites but there's nothing you know i i, you know, I don't dislike anything on trout mask if i hear one track i want to hear the whole thing mm-hmm. you know but never nevertheless within that uh, when big john sets up is kind of um, I've 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 got history with it. <laughs> yeah, it's a personal favorite of mine as well. It's 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 one of the, I mean I I love them all. This is this is one of the standout tracks. It's one of the ones that I first that I also first kind of connected with. Um, that that experience of um, putting out a lot of money for the double album and being utterly baffled by it at first, and then doggedly going, "Well, I paid a lot of money for this thing. I'm going to get my listening worth out of this, one way or another." It seems to have been kind of like the initiating experience for a fair number of people that you know. Well, I'm 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 paid a lot of money for this. I'm damn well going to listen to it. <laughs> and then ha- and then having that moment of of um, of cohesion and enlightenment, where suddenly it just suddenly you hear it and it just kind of stands out in three dimensions. It was. Um, yeah. I, I first got it on CD. I, I got it in the '90s, and so. Um, for me, it was like just kind of repeatedly listening to it. I didn't even do this, get the side breaks of turning the vinyl over from right. one side to the other. It was just one long blurt of, wow. of, of listening to it over and over again. And I had heard, um, I think shiny beast bat chain puller was the first beef heart album yeah. I'd gotten. And so I, I was some, I mean, that there's some pretty angular stuff on that. So I was somewhat initiated to what it was going to sound like, but, um, Frownland was still um, a surprise. It's quite it's, a throwdown, that isn't it? <laughs> it? It is, yeah. That's that's really setting you off on on an interesting foot. Um, and I, I think it's Barnes in his book comments that the the different the tonalities and the different uh, rhythms working against each other occasionally gives you this like almost holographic feeling of things popping out in three dimensions of like it of of you're like you're moving around a song and music and hearing it in ways that nothing else it's like you're hearing a different dimension to music than you would normally hear and yeah. once once that popped out for me everything else kind of sounded really flat for a while yeah that's a great way of putting it because it is like an exploded diagram in fact you mentioned bat chain puller that the the title track of that has got a fantastic part in the middle where this guitar section comes in from nowhere it's just grafted on the top of it but it's completely at odds with everything else but it's done so formally and it's a bit that i always look forward to because you know the grooves hammering away in the background and this thing just just lurches into the middle of it and um it's uh you know going from that back the way to trout mask you can see it as like oh yeah this is where that evolves to you know <laughs> this incredible thing where you don't have to justify what this thing is that has just crashed into the middle of this party, you know, um, and the song itself would be completely diminished without it, despite the fact that it just sounds like it has been beamed in from another planet. It's a, a fantastic way to to approach music. I think, you know, I, I know exactly the guitar part that you're talking about uh, on that track. That does it does pop its head up like the Loch Ness monster in the middle of of everything else, and and uh, it is. Yeah, it uh, it does suddenly turn the song, 
turn the piece into into something completely other with the i think um i think the guitar and bass are playing in like different temp uh, different rhythms i'd have to listen to it again and i'm not yeah. i'm by no stretch of the imagination an expert at picking up polyrhythms <laughs> I, I i can barely i mean i'm i'm a white man from the american midwest i can barely <laughs> follow along with a basic rhythm so once we start talking polyrhythms i'm 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 gone whoa <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's um it's just um it's the kind of prime example um you know again if i was if i had to explain to somebody you know how beef hearts tracks are assembled and you know what what seems arbitrary is something which has been considered and you know you know this is what we're doing now you know and it's the kind of the doggedness of it um i think is really is permanently inspiring this train with great tubes that houses people's very thoughts and beliefs. This stuff sounds like, um, and um, also I mean, to, to, I mean to get back to uh, when Big Jones sets up, um, I think probably the reason that it resonated so strongly in the first place was the fact that uh, lyrically it sounded like a kind of plea for tolerance, kind of you know, um, like an expression of solidarity with someone who. You know, like like I was at school. I was going, you know, I'm just sort of thread of a root body. You know, I was incredibly thin, <laughs> and um, you know, and uh, him going, I'll sit up with you, Big Joe. And I thought, oh, that's great. Um, well, you know, I've got a friend, and um, that was kind of uh, that just made it very, very, very appealing. You know, uh, if you're kind of like a, an outsider, like a lot of music geeks were, you know, um, that was oh, good. He's on our side, you know. And I think initially, as a teenager, that was like a big thing for me. I, I was I was thinking about that quite a bit yesterday as I was, I was listening to this song and and listening to the lyrics. Uh, I was and still am a great deal more like Big Joan. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm I'm a big guy, and uh, I can I can definitely and, and as you say, it's like when you first see the title and maybe for, first hear the first few lines about when Big Joan comes out, her arms are too small, her head like a ball. You, you kind of think like, oh, is is this going to be like, is he kind of dunking on this poor woman for for being overweight? But like you say, yeah. this this is a song of of solidarity, yeah. of of some of him, and it's not even like, because um, I was listening to there's this whole history of blues and R and B songs about like big women. Oh yeah. Like there's there's a I was just listening yesterday there's a lead belly track that I think I think is just straight up called and I, I should have made a note of this but it's something like fat woman blues or something like that. Right. Yeah. And they're they're very sexualized. They're all, yeah. you know, about like the 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 carnal joys of <laughs> of a big of a bigger woman. Yeah. Um this song is not and there's it do, it does not feel particularly sexualized to me. Like there's some some lines in it about um, pulling up her blouse and comparing her navel to the moon and she ain't built for going naked, but I, I don't get the feeling. There's not this like carnal revelry in her being a big woman. 
it's it's more like you say just it's about tolerance and solidarity and i'll set up with the big joan um i'm not i'll stay up all night i won't droop if you won't talk about your hands being too small it's it's like yeah we're in this together let's just hang out and um and yeah it's it's really uh, lovely it's very sweet natured i think um you know and uh, and sort of poignant and you know the images like um you know she's too fat to go out in the daytime all sort of stuff is like oh god that's, that's really sad you know and uh, the fact that he's kind of you know he said that's all right i've got your corner i'm with you is a really lovely and like you say it's not like a sexualized thing at all it's just saying it's just saying sweet and kind of devoted and um i think that was that was a kind of humanizing aspect which again was a reason that it, it kind of it clicked with me i thought oh yeah god he's uh, you know, despite um, however he may have uh, treated <laughs> the magic band, he sounds like he's probably quite a nice guy. Um, I know that's probably quite a, you know, I can't back that up. <laughs> I never met him, but, um, you know. There, there's definitely in the character sketches on, on most of the character sketches on this album, there is definitely a, a kindliness and an admiration that seems to come out as he's talking about these, the, the various oddball characters that, that populate the corners of this record. Like, um, Pachuco Cadaver is another one where it's not the the woman that he's talking about. You know, this ninety uh, nine year old uh, woman who goes out and dances, and everyone just everyone just steps aside because she's the the queen of the dance floor. It's yeah. you know he's he's singing about the way he's singing about her is this this admiring like her loving makes me so happy when I smile I crack my chin. It's like yeah he he's he's delighting in the company of these um, of these char- characters of his mind. I, I gather from, from what John French says in his book, um, Van Vliet had all these little, like almost fairy tale stories about these different characters, like big Joan and thread and uh, a bunch of other ones that didn't make um, at the old fart who shows up on old fart at play. Yeah. Um, and Van Vliet claimed they were sections from a novel, uh, whether that's true or not, who knows? Um, but yeah. uh, uh, French says something like, I always felt Big Joan was perhaps Don's view of himself. He was always a bit uncomfortable with his weight, which sometimes fluctuated to embarrassing levels. Also being large boned in an industry where rooster thin Mick Jagger was the norm may have made Don a little insecure about his stage appearance. So yeah, Don was at this point in his career also a big guy. So there's yeah. there's some fellow feeling there as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'd, I'd never... I'd never really thought of it as being um, in any way autobiographical in that sense, but you know, as you say, you can quite easily see how that could be the case. Um, another aspect, while I think of it, um, that I really like is um, his fantastic sort of congested sax playing in it, which is um, <laughs> <laughs> very much like um, it's, it's like an untutored. Uh, it's like someone who'd heard Annette Coleman and but didn't really know what they we're doing and said, "Right, go do this." And another obsession of mine at the same time as I was getting into Trout Mask was uh, the Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band album. And um, Ornette Coleman guests on um, a track called um, AOS, and he's playing trumpet on it. But the breakdown in Big Joan that comes in, well, within about a minute of the, the track, maybe 45 seconds, that almost reminds me of that track, AOS, you know, just this kind of strange, um, hushed, quite eerie, you know, it's like, what's that doing in the middle of this belting berserk tumbling R&B thing you know
but um, it has its own internal logic because it's on trap mass replica and kind of anything is permissible almost with within its parameters. I don't know if I'm putting that very well, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea that Ornette Coleman guested on a plastic on a band track, so I'm I'm excited to listen to that. Yeah, um, it, was great. it was the the the, the Yoko Ono equivalent of the John Lennon album that came out at the same time. They came out with identical covers except their positions are reversed against the right. tree on the front and um the um you know i, I loved the, the lennon one but the the, the yoko ono one was the one that i kept coming back to because it was just um again it was like a, a gateway to a lot of other um esoteric um fairly avant-garde experimental things that um absolutely consumed me at that age i mean given that um this was 77 78 i was into a lot of punk rock and stuff but um sure. it it kind of all felt, um, you know, um, I felt like I could justify why I liked all of it, even though at that time it was a case of, um, I, you know, I started getting into albums when I was 12 or 13 because of my big brother. And mm. I did have some prog LPs, which I literally had to hide under the bed for a few years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Your secret what, stash of prog. Yeah, you know, just, well, God, what if anybody finds out that I've got Made in Japan by Deep Purple or, or you know, the first two Yes albums, you know. Uh, but um, one of the great liberating things about being this age now is that um, I'm perfectly happy to fess up to all of it and um, and find um, you know find things to enjoy in, in all of that stuff, as well as some really mindless pop things. It's kind of... Um, you know, it's all it's all joyous to me. <laughs> yeah, you um, reach a point where you don't have to present a false front yeah. of who you are and what you like, and you just kind of accept, like, yeah, you know, I I can enjoy Plastic Ono Band and also enjoy the first couple of Yes albums and also enjoy, I don't know, you know, insert pop act here. It's there's, yeah. I I can I, I am allowed to contain multitudes. <laughs> I, I don't and i don't have to, i don't have to pretend to to fit into any particular milieu or 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 front as a uh in any yeah. kind of social group yeah and it is liberating um and also i mean it's funny to think um you know i i know quite a lot of people who are about my age who still seem to adhere to those weird sort of um playground um affiliations where they still kind of regard it as kind of, oh, no, I can't listen to that. It, you know, it, I just can't, you know, the older I get, the less I can imagine why you'd want to voluntarily wall yourself off from things when there's so much potentially brilliant stuff you could be listening to. But, Absolutely. Um, you know, but um, I don't want to think of it again. Um, the saxophone over the over the kind of the coda or the kind of blowing section always really makes me laugh because there's a bit where he's doing this repeated phrase which sounds like, you know, if you're trying to wash the dishes and you've got a dog that grabs hold of your dish cover, it's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is but he keeps playing on the sax. It just, it still cracks me up. It's just like a lot of this stuff. It's hysterically funny, but with this seriousness of intent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, he is playing for his life, um, even though it's you know his his skill level and that this is something that we've has come up on a few other episodes as well and in, in discussion of his his uh glee, joyfully untutored saxophone playing yeah. um that that he's i think it was bill harkle road who said um he sure pushed a lot of air through it which is the the question of like was that a compliment or not <laughs> um 
<laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is is um, yeah, as as uh, good natured <laughs> a good natured way of describing his saxophone playing. I, I actually this track has some of my favorite sax playing of his, and I think yeah. it is some of that just like because yeah, he doesn't have necessarily a technical grasp on what he's doing in any way, shape, or form, but there is a like feral intensity to his playing on this track that that fits with like the the band just um just pounding into this uh, repetitive groove in that um playing for their life kind of way there's there's this sense at certain points on this track that it's like barely holding together it's just really they're they're playing it as fast and as hard as they possibly can yeah, and yeah. His his sax playing is is of a piece with that. Yeah, very much so. Um, it sounds well, it sounds exhausting to to play at that, <laughs> that intensity. <laughs> for, it really does. Yeah, for as you say, it's like it's you know five minutes or so of of this. Also, the the very end of the track is also something which really makes me laugh because it, um, it always sounded to me like it was like. I tried to describe it to people. It was like the whole band uh, were indulging in a series of like communal sneezes. <laughs> I love that stop start. That that's so that they do a variation on that at about oh gosh, did I make did I remember to actually make yeah at the two minute and twenty nine second mark they do something very similar where they yeah. stop. I think Van Vliet has just delivered the line about. Uh, let me see here. A turquoise scarf and sleeve rolled up over a Merc Montclair, and the band just kind of, it's like the band stalls. Yeah. And then starts, and then the the groove starts back up again. It's, it's the, um, it's the oddest version of, uh, like a, uh, of a bridge. I, I think that a song has ever had. The bridge is just the band doing a, a, a juddering, as you said, a sneeze, and then back into the, the riff. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's a very it's a very characteristic beef heart thing where somebody else might think to put in like a middle eight or something. You know, you just get this insanity instead. You know, um, and um, it's again very liberating. That there's a tremendous live clip of them on YouTube which I'd never seen before until um, you know going back in to listen to the track again. Um, and it's the 1972 lineup, so um, Artie trips in there, but it's great. It's live, um, and uh, beef heart seems to seems to cue those stops, you know, um, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't cue the, like Zappa, it doesn't cue the the sneezing, you know, but um, he just basically holds a finger up and gets them to stop hammering away at the riff. And um, that, that was quite interesting because, you know, given that obviously everybody was kind of essentially dancing to his tune, you know, um, I wasn't sure how much control he necessarily exerted uh, in a live context, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I know that that some of the band members would would complain about him, in essence, seeming to barely know his own songs when they would <laughs> when they would play live. That his his grasp on when to come in on the vocals and uh, what piece would what section would start with another section was was on occasion fairly tenuous. But um, from what French said, um, that stop start section where he comes in with the saxophone at first is he actually did have to play that in the studio with the band, which was one of the only times he didn't just overdub his parts where he actually was playing the sax with the band, um, which evidently took forever. 
for them to, <laughs> to get right and for him to like select the reed that he wanted for his saxophone and so forth. Um, <laughs> so perhaps it, perhaps it was um, uh, it was uh, ground into his psyche a little more than some of the other stuff. Like he really remembered that section because it took him so long to actually do it correctly in the studio. Actually had to learn it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually had to learn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, if if I remember rightly, uh, when when he shuffled out on stage uh, when we saw him, he came out with carrying two bags. One was full of saxophones. And the other was full of lyrics. I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I may have I may have romanticised that over the years, but I'm pretty sure that, that that's what it was. And also, that's quite. He just he, he shuffled out like he was the janitor, basically, <laughs> in, in this uh, in this place. And uh, and the band were colossal. And um, it was again by that time I already knew that this is how the songs go. That's what they do. But um, to see to actually be there while the band was playing that stuff at that intensity. Um, it was kind of, I wouldn't say a Damascene moment because I had that already, but um, it just made me think, wow, um, again, hugely inspiring that, you know, you can, you know, this this music that you love can take any shape and it's okay. Um, you're allowed to do it. Um, it's legitimate and very empowering, I think. Yeah, it, it really is showing an entirely other path that music can take that that it's still recognizably within the realm of rock music of rock and roll but it's yeah. it's a a rock and roll that's been reassembled into a form that no one else before or since has has been able to it has produced anything really comparable um i'm i'm envious that you got to see i never got to see um don van vliet and the magic band play i saw the reunited magic band or the I guess they would be kind of like the best of the magic band. It was, it was French, Gary Lucas, uh, Denny Wally and, uh, Mark Boston on, um, they played, Oh gosh, what year was this? Maybe 2002, 2003, uh, played at a festival in, in long beach here in California. And I got to, I got to see that. And that was that same sense of like hearing this music pulled off live is quite an experience. Yeah. It's one thing to hear it on the record, and it's another thing when the musicians are actually in front of you, you know, conjuring yeah. this stuff. It, it it gives it a whole other dimension. Yeah, and there was a big part of um, at the at the time that I was getting into this stuff um, because it was that kind of punk time, uh, and you know, I, I play guitar and stuff. It was a very, um, you know, I um, I loved the idea that Beefheart. Uh, I aligned this with things like XTC and television, but it was like a third way. It was like you didn't have to be um, a fantastically adept player like um, like Steve Howe or, or something like that, you know. Nor did you have to mash out bar chords, you know. It was like a, a way of um, it was musical excellence that wasn't really anything to do with virtuosity. It was like a, another. Do you know what I mean? It was like another path that you could take that was very expressive um, and really difficult to do but it wasn't it didn't have the kind of potential sterility that normally you, you would tend to associate with virtuosity for want of a better word I, I no I, I i absolutely get that I, I i was talking to um i think it was uh on when i was talking with allison uh, marcellus um that before i got into Zappa and Beefheart, I had been listening to a lot of really bad, because I had started playing the guitar back yeah. in the early 90s, and I was listening to a lot of really terrible, like, shredder music. 
<laughs> that was what you were listening to is, is like you had to hear someone who could really play the hell out of the guitar so i was listening to and i don't mean any offense to people who like this stuff everyone <laughs> people are allowed to like what they like i'm not gonna Absolutely. i'm not trying to trying to dunk on these guys but like joe satriani and steve Vai and things like that where it was just uh, where the whole point of the music was look how badass a guitar player i am like yeah. that was that was the extent of it and then going from that to hearing zappa and then zappa led me to beefheart it, it was like yeah this this music particularly beefheart i would say is um it, it requires like technical skill to play but the point of it is not the technical skill that it requires to play it's the the amount of invention that goes into it is is the key yeah it's exactly that it's like it's a mindset more than more than um muscle memory um if you like and it also um you know a lot of my favorite players kind of technically aren't that great i, I do like a lot of technical players too but um you know if i was to think of some of my favorite guitar solos and there's things like uh, things that jimmy reed does which um are laughably inept almost but they're just brilliant (laughs) nobody else would do them and nobody else would think of doing them and nobody else would have the the temerity to do them and um you know i'd 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 take them to my grave and that they're you know that they're just brilliant brilliant things that um that i admire as much as i admire um ollie halsell for example who was just this technical you know again very left field what he was doing but uh, you know um it's and talking about it now, I mean, I can remember very, very distinctly how how influenced I was um, as a player at that point. Um, I remember my friend and I uh, trying to trying to work out Dali's car, the two parts in Dali's car. Oh wow! And I just just fallen over laughing at how how funny it was. Like you know, there's the kind of the, the da 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 da. Like kind of, here comes the bride reference in it, which is just. <laughs> Hysterically, you know, and played with that kind of determined, bloody mindedness. Um, we didn't really, I, I, we didn't get beyond twenty seconds into it because we just couldn't, just crying with laughter how how, how odd it was. But um, but the determination was there. You know, like I thought, we've got to. This is the way. This is the third way that you know that um that I've been seeking. <laughs> I love how you describe that as a here come the bride. Here comes the bride. Riff, I, I so desperately want to see someone walking down the aisle to Dolly's car <laughs> now that I may have to like see if I can find a bridal video and just dub Dolly's car over it because that would be so great. But yeah, I I remember being so pleased with myself when I, I I screw around on on bass and guitar. I would never go so far as to call myself a musician, but being so pleased with myself when I picked out the riff to Tropical Hot Dog Night, oh, which great. is um pretty simple by beefheart standards but it was still it, i i just remember that feeling of accomplishment oh, like oh hey i could actually play one tiny little piece of this <laughs> I, i've talked to a couple of people who have um played in beefheart cover bands for this oh, yeah. this project and uh i was talking to uh, ben waters about like what's the process of learning this stuff and he said well you learn about you know 30 seconds of it and practice that until you've got it. And then you move on to the next 30 seconds and practice that. It's like there's everything is so disconnected and so outside of standard form that really all you can do is just kind of do it bit by bit until you finally can piece it all together. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, he really could, if he wanted, um, assemble a fairly linear groove 
um, you know, perhaps a bit later than Trout Mask, but um, but certainly, well, Batchy and Puller again is a great example. It's got this fantastic sloppy, uh, you know, limping, lopsided groove to it, but it kind of sits in it for the most part, you know. Um, so he kind of, you know, he could do that, and and they come up with some incredible, like you were saying about um, Big Joe, and it's it's weirdly danceable, you know, and they could do that at the Magic Band, but um, the certainly the stuff from Trout Mask um, is. Yeah, it's like it's like you have to go microscopic at every part of it and think, right, okay, this this is how these f- five or six bars go, <laughs> and then um, you know, learn that, and then um, you hope for the best. You go to the next bit, and then hope you'll still remember the first bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what was it again? But um, but again, you know, great. <laughs> Just so inspiring, you know. That's the, I keep coming back to that, but it really is. I mean, I haven't, you know, I haven't squeezed the pips out of it yet in terms of how how much inspiration I can draw from it. Can oh, I know. To- there's there's so much creativity and invention on this album. Just in one song on this album, there's there's so much. And you know, listening to it again, uh, you and I have both, I'm sure, listened to this album in the the dozens, if not perhaps hundreds of times oh, at you. this point. And I still hear things I've never caught before. I still hear little riffs where I'm like, oh, I was so distracted by all the stuff going on over here that I never noticed that, you know, Jeff Cotton in the, the left channel is playing this. It, it's there's yeah. there's a, a an abundance of music here. Um, and before we're, we're done with the track, I did want to mention that this that Big, when Big Jones sets up has one of my favorite uh, Van Vliet vocal performances. Um, it's his really showing off the kind of virtuosic flexibility of his of his voice and his range when the song kicks off he's singing in this kind of pinched almost falsetto yeah voice it's- just this really really odd um nasal sound that's un- totally unlike any of the rest of his vocal performances on this album and then about a minute in kicks into this his his more traditional kind of ferocious growl of the yeah. voice there's kind of uh yeah that that kind of strangled falsetto um again is I, I, you know it just oh, it makes me laugh every time i hear it. i love it um that there's a bit um towards the end of uh the blimp i uh, know sorry um pina which um uh, i guess it might be uh that might not be his doing but there's a kind of <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah! The crazy whooping, uh, yeah, um, which, um, scat know, singing. Yeah, and again, you know that. Um, uh, again, that's one of my favorite tracks on it. Um, which was, you know, f- uh, th- this idea of um, you know you can be wandering along and, and singing it in your head, and suddenly a line will make perfect sense. You think, oh yeah, I know what he means. That, you know, a barrel of red velvet balls, full past noise. Oh yeah, of course, it's full of red velvet balls. You know, you're not going to hear anything. Oh, great! God, that's what that means. And um, and uh, the blimp. There's the bit where the um, you know, the crazy hoops were. You can see them just as they were. See them just as they were. You know, when you're watching a propeller go around, and you can see like a sh- the shape of the propeller going around more slowly than the you know. I thought, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> and, you know, I have like, never made that connection. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. When suddenly yeah. each individual blade stands out, and you're like, oh yeah. yeah. You think, oh, that was, and um, it's great. I used to have these. Uh, my my mate Campbell and I, we'd have these revelations 
kind of on a more or less daily basis. We had this idea. We were teenagers. You know, we thought, why don't we? Why don't we make badges like a big badge of Captain Beefheart with a bit at the bottom that you can you can wipe off and you have a different Beefheart line every day on this badge. <laughs> and, uh, That's brilliant. We were, yeah, we were that obsessive, you know, and um, that uh, you know, which we you know, which we did for I don't know three or four months. I think. <laughs> really looking forward to see you know which line the other would put on <laughs> for that day. You know, it's the little things, but um, but that really you know that really kind of uh, helped at that point in my life. <laughs> so you had a little community of fellow fans. Then there were a few people around who were listening to this and and enjoying it a yeah. lot with you. Yeah, yeah, there was a kind of a, a sort of hardcore um, of maybe I guess about four or five people who were just absolutely nuts about him, and the rest of our friends, to varying degrees, tolerated it. You know, because we would absolutely inflict it on them any chance we got. You know, we'd take. Trout mass to, to parties and stuff, and let's stick it on, you know, when uh, when people want to hear like you know, um, I don't, you know, ELO or whatever, you know, n- nothing against the ELO, but you know, uh, people are having a, a great teenage time at this party, and we're sticking this thing on. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> listen to this, you know, you've got to hear all four sides, you've got to hear them all. And, oh God Almighty! <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, the vast majority of the party clears out, but the remainder are really into it. <laughs> I know it's always the same people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I, so, I was uh, talking to Ben Waters, he he said, and I, I feel like this could be the log line for this entire podcast thus far is there's no such thing as a half-hearted Captain Beefheart fan. Oh god, I, yeah, you have to. I feel I feel that to my to my core. <laughs> Very much so, and um, again, it's a kind of identifying thing. If I think about it, for a lot of the stuff which. I'm most fond of is the fact that within the first ten seconds, you know, you know if you're on board or not, you know, and if you're not on board, you cannot wait to run away from it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to go and see this band um, at this time, uh, a Scottish band called Chow Parrot, um, and they were fantastic. I mean, I can't recommend them highly enough, but although sadly they're they're very underrepresented on on record, but um, I went to see them live all the time. They were huge Beefheart and Zappa fanatics, and uh, playing all original stuff. But with that kind of, you know, absolutely berserk intensity and that kind of weird sophistication, you know, um, and um, they were very much like that. They play in these very, very rough Scottish pubs, you know, so it was incredibly brave of them to make this noise. But, uh, you know, again, you'd see they'd start the first song. You never heard them tune up. They'd just bang, first song, just be this <laughs> fist of sound. And uh, people's pints would be spilled. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, people would be piling out the pub because they just couldn't bear it, you know. And the handful of, you know, sort of idiots like ourselves would just be, <laughs> oh, God, this is the best. You know, uh, even I, I remember going to see them uh, at the at the same place I saw Beefheart, funnily enough, um, uh, Glasgow Apollo. They were supporting um, a punk band called The Rosillos, um, and they were... They, they got basically drafted at the last minute um, because it was meant to be the undertones and they couldn't make it. So Chow Park came on and I had the sight of them playing. Uh, there was a row of punks in the, the row in front of me with their fingers in their ears. And <laughs> 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 I was thinking, oh, that's hardcore. So um, that was like a big, uh, you know, as if I couldn't, as if I had, didn't love them enough already. <laughs> so oh, that's that was, brilliant. That was a great sight. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I'm going to ask you when this is done if you could email me the name of that band, and I'm going to see what I can find online of their music and see if uh, we can include a little bit of it. 
um just or yeah. like a link to it in with the the info on this track because i'd love to hear yeah. whatever is recorded of these guys for sure i'll, I'll see what i can find <laughs> But yeah, I was just reading something similar, like um, one of the incarnations of the Magic Band, I think it was the 1975 Magic Band, opened for Pink Floyd at, uh, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce the name of this place, Nebworth. Oh, um, Nebworth. And, and I guess that like a lot of the Pink, and you you know, some of Pink Floyd stuff is is certainly not up to Magic Band levels of, of noisy, but but gets a little experimental. So you'd think their audience would perhaps be a little more open-minded, but I, I guess the vast majority of the Pink Floyd fans are like, what the hell is this shit? As, <laughs> as you know, Beefheart's band went, was, was off in flight. So yeah, you're you, the, the people who uh, it can be, I've definitely annoyed um, my fair share of pubs by, by putting on Beefheart on the, the uh, jukebox. <laughs> yeah but it kind of you know you're burning with evangelical zeal you want to yep. you want everyone else to 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 love this stuff and um it takes you know years and years of, of bitter experience to realize that not everybody's wired that way yeah <laughs> yeah and they may not thank you for it so um <laughs> but the ones who are it's it's worthwhile because every once in a while you'll get someone like hey this is what this is really cool and you know that's one of the one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is just kind of a proselytizing zeal of, you know, loving this album and this music so much and just reveling in the opportunity to talk about it. And maybe one or two people who have not heard it before will seek it out. And maybe someone will have it be as uh, important in their lives as it has been in ours. Sure. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah, we can hope. Hope springs eternal. (laughs) Uh, did you have uh, any anything else you want to say about this track before we wrap it up? Um, no, I think I've probably covered just about as much as uh, yeah. No, um, f- um, yeah, no, I have. I've got um, a very personal memory of it, which I think I'll email to you. <laughs> rather than okay, that's fair. Sure. That's fair. Um, so uh, Darren rates the songs. Um, as I say on every episode, each one is five out of five for me, just because they are singular and incomparable there i don't feel like there's rating rating it feels weird because it exists outside of rating schema for me um i should have come up with something more inventive it occurs to me now i should have come up with something like i rate this you know a a a squid out of five or something just to to (laughs) make it slightly more interesting than just saying the same thing every episode but i do want to give the guest if you would like to rate this song uh you are you are welcome to do so um Standard is out of five, although Samuel Andreev uh, flipped the script and uh, rated Pachuco Cadaver a ten out of five. So oh, I feel what? like that. I feel like that kind of just blows up the whole rating thing to begin with. Um, but you? you're welcome to rate the song, and uh, <laughs> if you have any uh, plugs or socials that you would like to to put out there. Okay, well, um, it's clearly a five. Um, I'm with you. Everything's a five. Um, if I can say five star, 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 you know, on, or five to the power of infinity, then, then no. <laughs> but, um, exponentially uh, grown five. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of, uh, I'm I'm on Twitter um, at Marco Squawks, um, which is it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, <laughs> my, my band, uh, Gothic Chicken, uh, we have an album called um, Lift the Cobweb Veil that's um, available online somewhere, um, I guess, on vinyl. 
Uh, other than that, that's about the size of it, I think. Uh, by record collector, by Shindig magazine, that they, they need everyone's help at the moment. Absolutely. And I will make sure that those plugs are included with the additional information uh, in with this uh, this podcast. Uh, if you want to follow Track by Track on Twitter, it is at underscore Track by Track. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. Same on Instagram. And uh, Marco, thank you again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure, Joel. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you.